Welcome to the House of Strauss. Yeah, go for it. Stars hang with stars, winners hang with winners. Welcome to the House of Strauss podcast. I am thrilled to have Ben Smith, the founder of Semaphore, uh, formerly the editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed News, formerly a New York Times columnist. Am I missing anything, Ben, in this illustrious career? Uh, that, that, that about covers it. And it has nothing to do with why I want to talk with you. Well, something to do with it, as you will know if you do read Traffic, Genius, Rivalry, and Delusion in the Billion Dollar Race to Go Viral. Um, ben, uh, I, I loved your book, man. I want to talk a bit about that. And maybe That's throw so some nice other... to hear. Yeah, well, it's true. And, well, I love contemporary history, and I love memoir. And what I enjoyed is that your book almost starts as the one and then collides uh it collides with the other and it sort of merges and i thought that that was a great artistic choice and it, there's something happening right now where things are moving so quickly where even the very recent past that we all live through is a foreign country and for those who don't know um the book it just does your book does a great job of covering the early social media era and the rivalries that shaped everything today in a way that I'm almost surprised more people haven't done. Um, it, it was uh, wholly engrossing, man. That's like incredibly kind of you to say. Thank you. Well, you know, it's it, it happens to be true. And, it, it, you know, above everything else, I think it's quite thought provoking. Uh, you start seeing these connections between the recent past and today. And I'm not even I'm not even sure where to begin. I might even anchor this, Ben with something that you get at in the book later on, which is why was the New York times the winner in this crazy, this crazy battle for traffic for hearts and minds? Uh, you really lay out how the hotness back then was Gawker. It was Buzzfeed. The old dinosaurs were completely dismissed. And I thought you did a great job because there's this creeping determinism where we can often just assume that, whatever happened was obvious and well obviously the new york times is the biggest newspaper so obviously it's a goliath but you really lay out that this had to be forged and fashioned and i mean do you have any big theories on why an era in which institutions completely corroded and fell apart left with the new york times almost being the last one standing yeah i mean i definitely when i sort of because as, as you suggested i kind of set out to write you know, I kind of came up from running BuzzFeed in 2020 at the times then and thought, like, what the hell did we all just live through? Um, <laughs> and, and to some degree, the book is my attempt to to sort of go back and tell that origin story um, of, of this moment. It was certainly one of the surprises to me in writing the book that, you know, that it turned out to be in part a book about how The New York Times had survived in almost like a business school case study for the mm. of how of how a legacy, a great legacy brand succeeds in the face of all this technological disruption. I mean, the Times story is interesting because, I mean, the extent to which the Times wasn't just not online in the early aughts, but like the internet was structured around hating the New York Times. Like I've always had a theory that Thomas Friedman could never really be on the internet <laughs> because the <laughs> entire structure of blogs and Twitter was about hating Thomas Friedman. <laughs> and so like, like just structurally, they're like, like it just didn't work. Like the whole internet was struck for a long time, for years, the whole internet was structured around whenever a Thomas Friedman column dropped, everybody yelling about it. And so how could mm -hmm. he be on the internet? It would spoil the whole thing. Um, and so, and the times, you know, we did actually, you know, experimented with digital for a long time, but fundamentally they're, you know, like all these news, these news organizations and newspapers, their business model was under attack in a way that wasn't, it was no obvious way out of it the internet had dis, you know, kind of unbundled advertising from and personalized it on one hand. And there, you couldn't, there were no digital subscriptions on the other in the two thousands. And that wasn't because the times wasn't good at selling at them. It's because Apple pay didn't exist and mobile didn't exist. And people weren't used to putting their credit cards into the internet. And 
ultimately they had to wait for Netflix and for Spotify to train people to do that and then to ride on that. But the thing the Times did that's interesting, I mean, they were, there's a philosophy in sort of business that of fast following, that you don't need to be the first to something, you need to react very fast. And they didn't do that at all. They followed very slow. They kind of watched and they waited to see what would work. They were an incredibly easy target for years and years. You could run circles around them. And I remember visiting, it when, it's just a story, it's in the book in 2015, which was like sort of the peak of new media arrogance. Um, Jonah Peretti, the founder of BuzzFeed, went to visit the Times and he was interviewed by a guy named Cliff Levy, a very um, talented journalist who'd won a Pulitzer covering housing stuff in New York and then another one in Russia um, and who had developed the new NYT Now app for the Times. Remember Jonah saying to me before that meeting, like, it's incredible to launch a news app at the Times. You have to have won two Pulitzer Prizes because otherwise mm. they won't take you seriously. Um, mm. And in this meeting, he, uh, Cliff asks Jonah, you know, if you were the CEO of the New York Times, what would you do now? Is it in front of the board of the New York Times? And Jonah says, well, first thing I would do is I'd ask for a raise. And second thing is I'd go to my office and cry. Hmm. And, and and then, you know, the Times really managed to, ultimately, the Internet's not that hard. They're, they're hmm. on, the technical tricks are overstated. And they held on to their core brand and to their capacity to do great journalism. And they learned a lot of lessons and gradually caught up. And past everybody. And again, as you point out in the book, it wasn't obvious it would work out that way. And it was quite the opposite. I love that scene as well, uh, where he's sort of taking time out to meet with the dinosaur. And one of the reasons why I love that scene is that it's so incomprehensible now, looking back on it, that that would be the power dynamic, that BuzzFeed would be the the big dog and the New York Times would be kind of looking to BuzzFeed to figure out how to be. Uh, let's get into Jonah Peretti, um, your old boss and somebody that much of the book is anchored around. You know, it's almost a bit of a Jonah Peretti biography. Um, many people in media know a lot about Jonah Peretti. Um, I'm not, I wasn't one of them. Uh, I think maybe because I was just in a different corner of the media in sports. I, Basically, I, I would hear about him when there was some union fight and some people were mad at him in my Twitter feed and they would all talk knowingly, Jonah Peretti, as though this is somebody I, I should know, who I needed to know. And apparently I did, because according to your book, he shaped much of the Internet. Um, why overall? And it's a big question. And, you know, if you don't, if you consider it a spoiler, then, you know, you can redirect. But this guy really appeared to master virality. And somehow in the end, even though he seemed totally in control of the Internet, an expert at optimizing it, why didn't he win in the end? I mean, what 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 changed? I mean, he seemed to have the wind at his back. He had this company. It did really well traffic wise. He had relationships at Facebook. I was fascinated by the, as you put it in the personal dynamics that, that dictate business from that strong position. How could he not have won? Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, the book, I mean, I, there's sort of two characters who I wrote about, uh, who were the sort of center of the narrative, Jonah and, and Nick Denton, who founded Gawker. And I actually chose them both because in this like very early internet scene in New York, and like a lot of things, the, you know, a lot of innovation and change comes out of tiny little scenes where everybody knows each other, where it doesn't, where, where they're all anonymous to outsiders, and and only they realize how cool the thing they're doing is, and maybe they don't even. And the thing about him and, and Denton, who created Gawker, was that they both were people who, in this early internet world, where a lot of people thought it was kind of a fun toy, they saw, oh, this is going to swallow everything. This could be this huge business, this huge thing. And, you know, Jonah, it was this kind of quirky, didn't certainly didn't consider himself a journalist or in publishing or anything like that. Um, was, you know, kind of an outsider had gone to uh, Santa Cruz and was at MIT and then taught and then been a teacher for a bit and went to MIT Media Lab to sort of play around with this new internet technology and had this experience there that kind of like shaped his own career, which is that he He's, he was like the culture he came out of. And it's like almost embarrassing to say this now. And you may be too young to know what this word means, but he was a culture jammer. Like mm -hmm. there was this sort of anti-corporate 
90s slacker anti you know anti-advertising he, movement he was an, it was especially about, gen, he was especially gen x is what i got from your book yeah and he had you know sort of come up as a prankster like like defacing corporate billboards was sort of his thing and mm-hmm. the and nike the iconic like sort of bad guy corporation for certain group of people in the early aughts um was it had a new promotion on the on the new internet where you could customize sneakers with a word. And so he put in the word sweatshop as kind of a prank and then had this extended dialogue with a customer service representative who told him that wasn't really a word, so he couldn't use it and actually said, well, it is a word. And she said, well, it's not in the terms of service. And he read the terms of service and argued with her about it and finally said, well, you know, I realize you won't print it, but could you send me a picture of the seven-year-old Vietnamese girl who made the shoes? At which point they stopped responding to him and he thought he was clever. So he sent it to Harper's Magazine to be included in the Harper Index and they rejected it. And so he forwarded it to a few friends. And of course, email forwards were the original viral media and it went insanely viral and everybody in the country had seen it pretty soon. And three weeks later, he's on the Today Show with Katie Couric and with a spokesman for Nike debating sweatshops about which he knows nothing. Um, And what he took from the experience was kind of like, wait, what happened here? There's this like, this is a new form of distribution, which is a really interesting insight. Like that's not, I think, how most people experience that sort of thing from the inside. Like most people think it's about them actually. But what Mm. he realized was that he had like, that there was this new kind of distribution that digital media in its early stages was enabling. And that as it grew through, through what would become social media. And he was really one of the first people to see the birth of social media, that, that this would overtake other forms, you know, the old distribution, which was you either own a printing press or a broadcast tower, or you can't really do it. And Buzz in Huffington Post and then BuzzFeed, both of which he he founded and co-founded, um, you know, kind of reflected this way of thinking about content that was nothing like the way people coming out of publishing and journalism were thinking about content. And when I met him in 2011, and, you know, he was trying to hire me to be the news, the, to run news at a cat website. It was very confusing for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I realized like, oh, what he's really thinking about is a world where people on their desktop computers go to facebook.com and twitter.com rather than your website, rather than houseofstrauss.com. And the challenge for a journalist or for a cat picture curator is to get into those feeds, which by the way, now is like totally intuitive and probably how you've done your, your whole career. But in... And in fact, is now and now is that whole moment is coming to an end. But in that moment, when I was a political journalist, felt like, oh, yeah, this is how it works. And this is going to be a huge advantage to understand that and to run a news organization that's built for this new moment. I'm struck by the insight you just had earlier that most people would have assumed that that viral moment and being on the Today Show was about them. And maybe I'm the voice of a generation, as as Lena Dunham's character said, and they would have gone that route. It does speak to the idiosyncratic nature of your former boss that he instead saw a completely new industry rather than uh, something inspiring in himself as uh, a political actor or a social or a social actor. Yeah, I mean, if you uh, look at people who went viral in that early age, um, like there was a, I don't know if you remember the Numa Numa dance, but that was a big one. Uh, and there was this guy who <laughs> sang to familiar. this. I feel like it was a Moldovan <laughs> folk tune. And he did this yeah. sort of wild over the top performance in the bathroom mirror. This kind of like, I think, overweight kid from New Jersey. And it was this massively viral thing that you have no doubt seen. And it got like, you know, 20 million views on YouTube. And so the lesson he took from that is that he should make Numa Numa 2. And Numa Numa 2 got like 1 million <laughs> oh, yeah, this views. this is in your book. Yeah. And then yeah. like Numa Numa 3 <laughs> gets like 100,000 views because it turns out that whatever was happening there, it was not about people's newfound love for Moldovan folk music. And <laughs> I think that, re- you know, and, and then you kind of can kind of get obsessed with, well, what was it? What are the characteristics that make people want to share things? And yeah, I mean, Jonah, who, you know, has had his ups and downs as a CEO, um, really is kind of a visionary. And it was, I'd never worked for anybody like that who could say to you, like, here's what the world's going to be like in 10 years. I mean, sometimes you'd then say, okay, what do we do now, boss? And he'd be like, I don't know, I've never done this before either. But <laughs> he did have this sense of, of where things were headed into this social media age. Did he doubt himself frequently? I didn't get a sense that he was especially neurotic from your book. But 
did he just think that he was in control of this insanely complicated, ever shifting terrain of the internet? I mean, one of I, again, one of the things I like about your book is that we have a lot of biographies, we have autobiographies. Yours is at a slight remove. You're almost it's the part of the book that's about him. It's almost like the biography as told by the right hand man. And I think that there are some it's a perspective you usually don't get. And I'm I'm curious, you know, just being around him, what what was it what was it like? What was his confidence like through this whole all these storms? Um, you know, for the in the in that first period after BuzzFeed really took off in like 2012, you know, we just felt like we had the wind at our backs. The mm-hmm. revenues were growing like crazy, traffic was growing like crazy. Our sort of cultural relevance was getting really, you know, went from nowhere to being this sort of central thing that everybody talked about all the time. And so I think we had no reason to doubt ourselves. It just felt like, okay, like almost the details of management and of sale, you know, ad sales don't even matter because these sort of cultural technological wins are so much at our backs. I got from your book that you think that Jonah Peretti is a genius Anna Holmes, who founded Jezebel, you think she's a genius. Nick Denton, who the book is also structured around. I don't totally know if you think Nick Denton was a genius. So that's that's my question. Was he? Or I mean, what genius was he? is a strong word. Those Anna and Anna and Jonah are people I really admire, actually. And I'm glad I'm glad you picked that up in terms of you know, really in terms of like the the moment. I don't know, genius strong word, but having being in a moment and just sort of seeing something that other people mm-hmm. didn't see. And I think Denton did too. Yeah, for sure. I mean, he saw, I mean, and he also like Jonah in that very early internet moment saw like, Oh, this is going to totally consume the media business. Again, this isn't, this internet thing isn't some little toy. It's not, it's not alternative. Exactly. It's competitive and it's, you know, and, and, and I think that was a, you know, pretty serious insight and he, you know, build a big business and also like Jonah, I mean, very ideological. And I think that's, you know, a huge, for both of them, a big problem. Like Jonah had this very fixed view of what social media would become. And when things got a lot darker, that didn't really match his view. For Denton, mm. he had this very dark view of that, the, the, you know, the, what the internet was really for was sort of exposing the hypocrisies. And they were both kind of utopians and revolutionaries in their way. But and for Denton, it meant exposing the hypocrisies of the readers, among others. Because once you have traffic, you can see that nobody's reading the story about the city council. Everybody's reading. Everybody's watching the Farrah Abraham sex tape. And so you mm. publish that. And if somebody says you're a pornographer, you celebrate it. Um, mm. And for and and sometimes that could be really that kind of level of honesty was really, I think, sort of salutary, like what early Jezebel did in terms of stripping away the hypocrisies of women's magazines. I mean, there's also a moment when mainstream media coverage of the Iraq war had just been like atrocious and this huge, you know, national disaster. And they were sort of saying that honestly in a way that the mainstream media was not. But then there was this other element that was just sort of exposure for exposure's sake. And the belief that like, if you knew something, you sort of had a moral obligation to print it, which extended to outing and publishing sex tapes and stuff that was in kind of a cultural gray area in the early days of the internet. And now whatever you or I might think of those practices are just despised in, and, and Gawker in some ways could have, I think fell really out of touch with the culture because it was so ideological. That's that's the theme of yours is how people get wedded to their philosophies and and it blinds them. Could you flesh out Peretti's philosophy of because you do have these warring views of why traffic happens or how you get it? And I think you you kind of uh, elucidated some of the Denton theory on how it happens. What was the Peretti theory on why traffic happens? I mean, so Peretti had had this experience of um of going viral and had sort of made a study of it and really thought about distribution as a form of, uh, as being about psychology. And, you know, and, and really the question is like, why would somebody share this? And so people, what people would share things ultimately that reflected well on them. So they'd share, you know, 23 images that will restore your faith in humanity, or they'll share 23 things that explain what it was like to grow up Jewish on the Upper West Side of the eighties. Like, mm-hmm you know, things that would, they think something you'd want to share with your friends and, or, or jokes or cute pictures or, or here's this thoughtful Atlantic piece. Um, 
I think his theory was that, and I remember we definitely thought this, I mean, the early BuzzFeed um, slogan was no haters. And that wasn't sort of by accident. That was because the theory was nobody's going to share on social, on this nascent social media, toxic, insane political content because you look like a lunatic and who would want to look like that? That did not mm. turn out to be how things worked. And maybe it was, just like, it was sort of a, it was a, in some ways, a mistake about human nature. I, and I don't blame him. I wouldn't have foreseen that. I go on Facebook sometimes and I look at somebody's ranting and raving uh, about politics. And I think to myself, why, why would one do this? Or why would one think this is a, a good way to be seen by your friends and your family? But apparently they do. Um, you frame that famous viral uh, moment of is the dress blue or white that Many of you listening doubtless do remember. Uh, apparently, we see colors slightly differently. Uh, this dress was a revelation of that. Why do you think that was the the last gasp of viral internet innocence, and why can't we get back to it? So, um, yeah, I mean, the, the, so the, yeah, there was this day on the internet. It was like March of 2015 that I do think of as kind of the last good day on the internet. Um, mm. And they actually, just to indulge me slightly further that was the morning some of your some of your listeners may remember that a bunch of llamas got loose in i think it was arizona and we all spent the morning tweeting about these llamas that were like these hapless sheriffs chasing llamas around that kept getting away <laughs> just when they were on the brink of captivity um <laughs> the internet used to be so fun and uh, um and uh and then, yeah and then that that afternoon and this was really also the peak of buzzfeed's kind of cultural power in a fun silly way a woman had gone to a um, a wedding, I think it was in the Hebrides in Scotland, and come back and had this photo, and she and her mom were arguing about whether it was in fact white and gold or black and blue, the dress in the photo. I think it was a photo of her mom wearing the dress. An inexpensive dress bought on the internet. And they kind of thought, like, this is insane that we can't agree on this. Let's see if BuzzFeed can help us. And sent it, messaged it to BuzzFeed's Tumblr and said, hey, BuzzFeed, can you help us resolve this? And then suddenly in the office, everybody's arguing what color it is. This editor posts it to the to BuzzFeed saying, what color is, is this dress? And it's really a classic optical illusion, you know, like the famous um, drawing of the, the something that's a vase, if you look at it one way and a, a woman's face, yeah. if you look another. Um, and it and there's a fair amount of like, like there are like op, optical scientists arguing about why exactly. It was a very badly lit photo and the quality of the light meant that some people saw it one way, some people saw it another. But in any case, it just prompted these, endless, quite sweet and harmless arguments on the internet that, um, and particularly on Facebook and, and spread with an unbelievable speed, you know, within hours, everyone in the world had seen it. And, um, you know, one of the things that I think we didn't clock at the time, but was, you know, Facebook had been gradually optimizing its platform to promote engagement. And they weren't thinking we want to favor silly viral content or we want to favor right-wing politics. They were thinking, you're spending 15 minutes on Facebook every day and we want you to spend 15 minutes and 42 seconds. I mean, they were just optimizing for how much time you would spend and how many ads you'd click on. But what they found was that if if they showed you things that other people had been commenting on, that was a pretty good predictor that you would comment on them too. And so they started optimizing for a certain kind of engagement that was about comments. And what that really, really optimized for was things that were divisive, for things that people mm. wanted to argue about. And the dress was in the sweetest, most harmless way imaginable, totally divisive. Some people thought it was one color. Some people thought it was the other color, and they would argue endlessly about it. And then other people would see it because Facebook was saying, wow, these people are so engaged. Facebook, I think even, I think Jonah ran into a Facebook executive soon after that and said, wow, wasn't that cool, this dress thing. And the Facebook people, I think to his surprise, said, we don't really know. Like, should we, how often should we allow that to happen? Which mm. was sort of a sign to us of, oh, okay, like, like they're exercising more control and getting more freaked out about this viral internet than we had realized. And that's because the other way to go really viral was you post a racist meme and I say, you're a racist. And then you say, no, you're a racist. And then it shows it to all of our friends who th thoughtfully weigh in on the question of whether you're a racist. And the <laughs> system says, what wonderful engagement, let's show this to more people. <laughs> and that a lot of that was happening on Facebook too. Yeah, it's um, there's a lot of, as I frequently quote, I think it's Campbell's rule that when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a useful measure, or in this case, uh, maybe destroys society. Um, I'm I'm not I'm not sure. Uh, I think you've also established that 
a lot of the derangement that we might have uh, seen had to do with Facebook trying to get into the news game uh, in addition to driving engagement to compete with Twitter. Uh, do you see that as A, having been a strategic mistake and B, potentially a society warping mistake? Um, and which one more so? Um, if at all. I mean, I don't know, maybe too soon to tell a little bit. But I do mm. think, you know, it's worth thinking about what was sort of the original, you know, was, because I think, you know, I mean, I, this may be a controversial thing to say now, but I think Facebook, the blue Facebook app and Twitter are doomed. I think they're unraveling. You can kind of see it. We're in the middle of it. Facebook will tell you, no, no, our engagement is still up. You coastal elites just aren't using it anymore. But in real America, they use it. But that's always what companies say before they, before their products collapse. Um, wow. And Twitter, you can just sort of see it's, it's you know, I'm sure it's not going to go away. It'll no doubt find some lane, but it's no longer has the kind of cultural centrality that did. Facebook certainly doesn't. The blue Facebook app. I mean, the company will be fine. And um, so I don't think it's crazy to say, huh, like what was the original sin? Where What mistakes did they make? Um, and certainly one, you know, you could go back and say there's this moment in you know, 08 or 09, it's in the book, I don't remember the day, but where Mark Zuckerberg sees Twitter's growth up and to the right and says, huh, like this is a very small app, but if it keeps growing at this rate, it's going to become a really big app. And by the way, like there's this level of, cultural relevance they're getting from the Arab Spring and from being the home of these new social movements that's pretty exciting that Facebook would like a piece of. And so Zuckerberg tries to buy it. And when he can't buy it, he cuts off its access to the Facebook API and he tries to clone it by bringing all this news into Facebook and flooding news with Facebook with news, flooding publishers with traffic from Facebook so that they'll pay attention to Facebook never really actually does manage to compete with Twitter for that kind of elite conversation or that political conversation, but does turn Facebook in a kind of Frankenstein way into a news platform. Not really sure that's what anybody ever wanted. Not sure that's what no. people were going on Facebook for. It was sort of a strategic no. business choice, not a response to consumer demand. And um, locked himself into this insane cage match with politics and with the news industry that I'm sure they regret there. Um, and... There are a million fascinating questions one could ask about that, but I'm very distracted from your bold take on how these companies that effectively swallowed the internet, in your estimation, have doomed apps. Why do you think the Facebook app and Twitter app are doomed? Um, I mean, I just think that when you have a social network that starts to unravel, they don't re-ravel. Like, they're mm. social, and they're not... Um, they're not infrastructure. And I think people mistook them for pipes, but really mm. they're social, they're social institutions. And, you know, and there's people talk about network effects and how, you know, everyone, everyone is on Facebook because everyone is on Facebook. But of course that's also true of like bars and nightclubs, right? Like a yeah. nightclub is popular and you go there because all your friends go there. And then for some reason, everybody stops going there. And it's not so easy to put your finger on why everybody stopped. Like maybe because you got tired of it. And then the younger people think it's annoying because you're, because the older people are lame. And then, the, you know, like it's, you know, it's, it's a social institution. Mm -hmm. And so, and then I think once people, once the, once it's cultural relevance starts fading, you can't like put in a better sound system and have everybody come back to your nightclub, like things just, and so I think if you look at, you know, every social network so far has kind of come and gone, Friendster and MySpace and all those. And I, and I don't really see why. And, I, and again, I don't mean that they won't have some utility, that they won't be decent businesses. I think Reddit is actually a great example of a platform that, you know, for all its recent woes, found a really like stable cultural space, but not a central vital one, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I thought about it after Musk took over Twitter and all the controversy and everything else. And I just kept thinking to myself, I'm not sure what he could do that would make me want to tweet. I just don't know. I mean, this is it, it's not an enjoyable place to have a conversation. I'm not sure how somebody I'm not smart enough to conceive of how somebody could create a technological innovation that would make Twitter a pleasant place to have a conversation. I think to what you're saying, a lot of that is just cultural. A lot of that is just how things progressed. And I don't think that it's simple to unravel it. And I mean, maybe this is too complimentary, uh, Ben, but I was looking at Semaphore today um, in preparation and I was just struck with 
how I was just getting so much information about the world. And it's so reflexive, I think, for journalists to hop on Twitter and absorb it that way. It's a very inefficient way to absorb information. I go to Semaphore. I haven't been paid to do this advertisement for your for your website, but I just go, oh, I didn't know there was a heat wave in China. Um, oh, I didn't know that, you know, there was uh, this situation in media. I'm, I just was looking at the media section, glancing at it. I didn't know that uh, Tucker Carlson's been replaced with Jesse Waters. They had no idea. I mean, these are things I could have conceivably learned going on Twitter, but it's so hard to sort through all the shit and get information. And I guess to what you're saying, it's kind of at a crossroads. It doesn't know if it's a social thing or if it's an informational thing. And it's kind of bad at both right now. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think Twitter had this real utility to people like us that you could go there and it would answer the question of like, what's happening now. And I think now you can go there and you can, often get the answer to the question of what is happening with Twitter right now, which is kind of a <laughs> fascinating story, but you, yeah. but right. But if there, there might, but there used to be that it was great at telling you here are the three or four big central stories in the world. And it seems just to have lost that utility. And that is certainly something it's said before that like we see as an opportunity We have this morning email called flagship that is very focused on doing that actually. Yeah. I, everyone should sign up for. I, it's a, it's a good plug and you can replug on the outro as well. I, uh, I do want to ask you some, some other questions. Um, you at, at a certain point got curious. Uh, we haven't spoken that much. This is our first really longer conversation, but you were curious about the NBA media game and how it works and how NBA reporting works. And because we're all in our little bubbles, whatever we're used to is whatever we're used to. And that's what seems normal. And I guess I've always wanted to know from the perspective of someone such as yourself with feet firmly planted in regular media or journalism, does the NBA media ecosystem seem more corrupt and insane from the outsider's perspective? Or does it just seem to be, yeah, have its own idiosyncrasies? I mean, it's pretty insane, but not more insane than I mean, I think the entertainment media broadly mm. is quite insane okay. and, and i guess i sort of think of sports as part of the entertainment industries um in that way like they're you know very much dominated by television revenue and and you know and talent driven agents play this central role agents represent journalists and also represent players um uh and and there's a sort of trade and sort of being first to small nuggets of information that we're going to come out anyway. But I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, it seems quite, I'm not as I'm not an insider to it, but I think, I mean, you, you've obviously caused a certain amount of trouble writing about it. And I do think <laughs> it's a good story, even if I never quite got to it at the times or figured out a way in. <laughs> I would still love, uh, I would have loved if you did, I would have loved your perspective, even if it, uh, well, if you've got a me. scoop for me, please tell me. after. <laughs> I've got plenty. I've got quite a few, but the thing about the New York Times is that when they when they do something, it does take on a different life. I had that feeling where I wrote about James Dolan and uh, the New York Knicks and spying on his customers. And I felt like I had done a fairly thorough job. But when the New York Times covered it, there was clearly this it's almost a starting pistol has been fired in the culture. And it's like, OK, now this is a thing. Now this is a thing that we are talking about. Um, and yeah, the New York work for the times is weird that way, either like now this is the thing that's been talking about or like now this is culturally dead because the New York times <laughs> has discovered it. I, I don't. Okay. So that's another interesting aspect to me to bring it back to your book. Um, you've said you often felt like you showed up at the, just too late when there was such a good time beforehand. And that's what you were almost, uh, reporting on in your book. I had that feeling reading it a bit just because you, portrayed the entire rise of Jezebel to its peak of uh, zeitgeisty prominence and then the thing that blew it up in many ways, this interview with somebody who I guess maybe a C-list comedian, I don't want to insult her, but I don't know anything about her, Uh, an interview that went very badly with uh, some of the writers and editors at, at Jezebel. And my entire conception of the website of being cool and being in the zeitgeist, Ben, is all after that point. 
that you portray as the explosion and the downfall. And there's that weird aspect where, you know, we're so atomized that sometimes we think things are cool. They're not cool anymore. And, you know, the people in New York and the New York media scene has already ruled it uh, as passe. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I mean, that is this funny thing about the Internet that it comes in these cycles and whatever you discover it is, is the beginning. And I definitely, I mean, I think any, um, you know, anytime you arrive at a workplace or a social scene, the first thing you're told is that like the really cool part, like just ended and that you're a little too late. And so definitely for me in doing the book, like it was, I had been a reporter in New York covering politics in the, in the aughts and was read Gawker and actually copied a lot of their style in reporting and learned a lot from them, but didn't know any of these people really. And and so for me, it was that the book was actually kind of a fun exercise and returning to this world that I'd been kind of looking at a bit through the glass and a little jealous of and, and understanding it. Uh, we haven't even talked about the Huffington Post, which now looking back on it might be, even though it was never a website that I would check frequently, uh, it seems to be one of the most influential websites in the history of the internet and a place where uh, ideological opponents uh, co-mingled in, in the past. Uh, Breitbart working at, at Huffington Post. Um, what, do you, what do you make of Huffington Post? Uh, perhaps, you know, we don't think about, we don't take it seriously in the rear view um, and yet seeming to have such a huge footprint on the culture. Yeah, I think that's... Um... I mean, I think that's it is it was really kind of a transitional publication. You know, it called itself the Internet newspaper, which Internet people thought was insane. But of course, really meant that a generation of, I guess, basically baby boomers for whom the Internet had been this weird and slightly hard to figure out place. That's who it was aimed at. And it had the all these inane blogs by celebrities like George Clooney and John Cusack writing about politics that was total no one wanted to read and it was very boring, but it gave the thing a kind of like, oh, this is real. This isn't some weird alternate hobby place. This is the real thing. The internet is a legitimate and real source of information. Um, and I do think that it brought, and, and by the way, a legitimate and real business for advertisers. Um, and I think because it was in a way connected to the older media traditions and in some ways in a ways that felt kind of silly, it also brought a lot of people onto the internet who hadn't been there. It also was straightforwardly trying to get Barack Obama elected president and, and it helped. Yeah, it's rather successfully. I thought that was such a great observation that you had that I don't think we reckon with uh, the generational observation that when something is new and the old people don't grok it, then we write off the old people as not having a role anymore in our society. But a lot of what happened is that the internet didn't go away and the old people didn't just die. Uh, we have good medicine. People are around for a while. So whether it's Huffington Post liberal boomers or it's, you know, the sorts of boomers who got Donald Trump elected, it seems like a lot of the story you tell of the internet is of old people getting incorporated into it and, and uh, that having an effect and an impact. Yeah, I think that's right. There was this presumption, it's funny to sort of think back to it, that the internet was left-wing. Like people would just, it was just sort of assumed. And when Barack Obama in 2011 visits Facebook, it's not, like he didn't have to say I'm here because this is a progressive place. Like it's like visiting Madison, Wisconsin or something. Like it's full mm. of kids. Of course it's liberal. Um, but, if, and, and, you know, starting really with Howard Dean, actually, left-wing politics had played out and left-wing fundraising and progressive movements had played out online in a way they didn't exactly have a right-wing counterpart. And I think people didn't quite realize that it was just because young people were on the internet and old people weren't, and that that was going to change really fast. And when suddenly everybody was on Facebook, there was a lot of conservative politics there. But the kind of conservative, like the conservatism of the aughts, like George W. Bush conservatism and particularly kind of Mitt Romney conservatism, we're not particularly well suited to Facebook, right? Like they weren't yeah. emotional. They weren't like powerful emotional appeals. They didn't get a lot of traffic. Um, and what, and, and I don't, and I, I think that, you know, there's a lot of like Facebook caused Donald Trump, Donald Trump caused Facebook stuff that I think is like very, very simplistic and would not suggest that, but certainly Facebook in the sort of mid teens 
was optimizing for a certain kind of engagement and, you know, argument and comments at a moment when there was this new right wing politics that was all really all about transgression, all about saying, and this isn't just in the US, all over the world, about saying stuff you're not supposed to say, whether it's sexist or racist or just like stupid and funny. Um, and you look at Boris Johnson or at Trump or at Duterte or, you know, all over the world, these figures, Bolsonaro, Modi, who are sort of saying stuff you're not supposed to say out loud, generating massive controversy to show that they're not the old fashioned, you know, scumbag insiders, they're real outsiders. And that kind of transgression signals that. And it's a real like deep feature of that kind of politics to make that kind of outrageous statement. And Facebook is built for it. Facebook is yeah. built to amplify that kind of thing. And I think the the way in which Facebook grew had grown up and this particular stream of right-wing politics really ran together. I think the other thing was that places like Breitbart, you know, in some ways took the lessons that places like BuzzFeed and Huffington Post had learned about traffic to their logical extremes. And, you know, I think mainstream right-wing media even probably had had some compunction about having a black crime vertical that was just crimes committed by black people. But Breitbart noticed that was the thing their readers really loved and clicked on a lot. So there you go. And and followed these kind of strains of racism and of, um, you know, fear about undocumented immigrants in particular to, again, to, to where the Republican base already was. It's just that nobody had was willing to go straight at it quite like that. There's some interesting opposing forces at work there because at the moment, transgression was seen as a sort of social proof that could go viral and attract admirers. Uh, what was considered transgressive, uh, the bar for that got so low as to where any normal person just in their normal conversations could be considered incredibly transgressive. And then it almost becomes a matter of uh, transgression is what makes you seem normal to people because you're not allowed to be normal uh, in this panopticon internet where we're all watching each other and it's easy for somebody to, yes, I'll say get canceled. It sounds dowdy or Yeah, I would say, I mean, I think... You, I think that's sort of true, although I do think that the timing is a little different. Like, mm. um, like the, I would say that in actually the kind of right wing politics sort of uh, maybe they came up together, but um, yeah, maybe they came up together. But I don't, I don't think that it's I mean, hazy, I think the, the it? kind of thing that it, Donald Trump was doing <laughs> was 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 not at first sort of reactive to um, social media sort of you know, gender yeah. language or anything will, like that. But, 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 they, they, they comp but they complimented each other. Yeah. It, he was more an attack on the Republican Party at first. Yeah. And, you know... I mean, the kind of things that he said was, yeah. right, were just really sexist stuff that sort of signaled a kind of, like, return to traditional gender roles. Was, like, George Bush was an idiot and the Iraq War was a disaster. Was, you morons want to take away Social Security and Medicare. Like, stuff that you know, that was sort of in the context of Republican Party politics kind of crazy and, and the anti-immigrant stuff that was, you know, it wasn't transgressive because it was like he used the wrong word for Mexican-Americans. He said that they were rapists. I think I'm trying to remember which I don't know if it was one of the Weinstein brothers or somebody analogized it to uh, in Reservoir Dogs, the character who just hauls off and shoots a bunch of people and then later they're trying to figure out which one of them is a cop, which one's an undercover cop. And they go, well, we know it's not that guy. You know, we know we can, uh, you know, we, we know that guy is not being controlled in that way. And that's the analogy basically. Is yeah. That, yeah. There's something to that, you, you know, seeming so crazy that at least you can't be controlled and that has a certain appeal. But I didn't come here to talk about Trump, uh, considering that there, there's just oceans of, um, of, of, uh, pontification about him. I am, incredibly interested in your theory that over time individuals have been elevated above institutions and brands. I, I want to know why you think that. It's a very odd thing for somebody to say when they're building an institution, when they founded an institution, but I want to know why you think that. And I want to know what that means. It's something that's been your, rattling your, around your, my it's, head. It's your incredible charisma. Um, <laughs> you're, talking about, you're talking about me? You, you think personally. I'm up with <laughs> me No, personally. I mean, I think if you look at like the shape of, and this isn't particularly 
even particularly connected to media, much less news. But I mean, if you look over the line, and it's a very long-term trend, like used to be Hollywood studios had all the power and now talent has all the power. And that's a change that happened in like the thirties and forties and fifties of the 20th century. Um, yeah. And I think it's that sort of spilled gradually through the rest of society. I mean, I think if you look at politics, the Republican Party, the Democratic Party don't really matter. What matters yeah. is the sta- is the standard bearer, is the candidate. Um, if you look at sports, teams matter less and less. Stars matter more and more in terms of their how much money they make, among other things, their cultural power, their power relative to the franchise. Um, and I think in news, partly because it's like the worst of the media businesses, it was in some ways the slowest for this to happen to. But I just think if you think, and, and, but it's something social media accelerated. And I think if you look at how people actually consume information, how they connect, they want, you know, it's, there's, everyone feels really overwhelmed by information. They aren't sure who to trust, particularly with a new brand. I think they're less likely to trust some new faceless brand than they are a person that they feel they can connect to. I mean, I do think podcasting is a space, one of the reasons that it's sort of, you know, in thriving is because of this trend. Well, let's get, let's get even more self-indulgent. I wasn't thinking too much about my, myself as a creator, Ben, uh, but, or my incredible charisma, which as we all know is legendary, but I'm wondering what, what do you think of Substack? You know, what's your take? Are you bullish? Are you bearish? Um, you know, I, I think as a company, it's challenging because any of these companies that are trying to kind of make, build a business as a platform for, I kind of hate the word creator because it's basically mm. like, uh, like I feel like YouTube created the word, coined that word to make sure that all of its, um, everyone putting videos would be like an atomized Uber driver rather mm. than some kind of cartel with leverage against them. But put that, mm. putting that aside, um, you know, the, you know, that ultimately what Substack, it's, it's not, the worry for Substack is the more successful you get, the less likely you want to give 10% of your money to Substack. But mm. regardless of the, of the business, the um the like the trend that they're seeing and or that and is the same one that we're seeing right that if you're trying to that, that individual journalists can build real connections with audiences and that and that you can build an institution of various kinds a platform or in our case a news organization around that yeah i that is a really tricky puzzle for them you know if you're somebody who's making over a million dollars in subscription fees on Substack, then you're forking over a hundred grand or so um, to the company. And it's not like Substack is doing more in terms of resources to keep your Substack operational than they are the person with five readers. Um, but I think their strategy is basically to keep you in the fold with network effects um, or just rely on people like myself who are just attitudinally uh, too lazy to uh, to maybe try to forge another path because this is good right now. I don't yeah, know. No, but. I mean, I think for them, I mean, I think actually they build a great product and it's easy for you to use and it extends here and there. And um, and and I think the thing they're doing really well right now is and, and they're finding more subscribers for you. Because when I subscribe to somebody else's newsletter, they say you might like Ethan's newsletter. Yes. Maybe I do. And I think if they can find ways to be valuable to you. Yeah. They can, that's, that, that works. But, and then I do think they have a pretty clear sense that you are their customer. I'm not their customer. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't have any relationship with Substack. I have a relationship with you and I think they're pretty good at realizing that, but it's, it's challenging for them because you don't want to, if you're building a company, you don't want to build WordPress. You don't want to be a sort of invisible kind of interchangeable publishing piece of software that, that, that could, they can be just as easily replaced with something else. It's tricky, and obviously, I enjoy it, and um, I I've loved working with them. Um, but there's the other danger where you don't want to just be software, but then there's this: Are you going to be branded as a place for people like fill in the blank? You know, um, and it's it's interesting to me as we were gonna you know, you're up against a hard out, so I'll try to get this one in quickly. I don't sometimes know why certain things work in certain places. People come to me and they go, should I set up a sports sub stack? And I'm honest with them. And I say it's possible, but it seems like what does well on Substack uh, is mostly political and cultural commentary. And there are some other things as well. I don't know if sports really, it's worked out for me. It's worked out for a few other people. 
It's worked out for Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, I think. Uh, but I don't know if it's the place for that, and I can't even articulate why. Um, I mean, I do think it's all about your audience. Like, I mean, you have to be real. I mean, the thing about this kind of media, this sort of post-social media world, is the audience isn't like an abstraction or some feature of an algorithm. You really have to know who you're, who you're writing or producing video for, what they want it for, where they are, when they're reading it, and speak really directly to people. Yeah, no, it's it's very simple. It's a business. I have customers. They email me. I email them back, and I think it's it's healthy uh, as a dynamic. Um, yeah. And I think incentives are at least aligned properly for myself, um, which is rare. And um, you know, it's all about getting those incentives to align properly to service good work which is my uh, intro for your outro and whatever you want to plug, though I, I suspect I have an idea of what it might be. Yeah, I mean, I, again, we are at Semaphore tr also trying to do a lot of this stuff. And I think in a way what we're trying to do is provide a platform for reporters who like to break news all the time on, on these key beats, finance, politics, technology, media. Um, so I hope people will sign up for our newsletters, semaphore.com slash newsletters. There you go. Are you going to get into the sports space at all? I just I have to ask. I mean, I'd like to. It's. I mean, it's. It was on my. It was. I, I had a global. When we were drawing up the semaphore plans, global sports was the global business of sports was in there. Um, you know, you just you, you don't want to bite off everything at the same time. No, you want to. You want to do great at uh, at the thing in front of you and expand but we should talk from there. Then. Okay. Okay. Well, you know, perhaps we shall. Ben, it's an incredible book. Uh, if you're into media, if you're into culture uh traffic genius rivalry and delusion in the billion dollar race to go viral ben smith it's been a pleasure man thank you so much great great meeting you sort of in person Good yeah you know yeah we'll, we'll meet in person one day thanks ben